All right. We five. You know, whenever Chad was talking about how in Psalm 22, the prophetic statement, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Um, that was actually looking forward to Christ on the cross. You know, that was the first time he had ever had broken fellowship with God. Because we know who Jesus was. He, was. he was God in the flesh. God come amongst men and, and walk in the flesh. He did not cease to be God during that point. But for the first time in all eternity past, he had complete separation whenever he bore the sins of the world upon him. Because God could not, could not even look upon that sin. So he turned his back for the first time. I think that's really important, you know. And I think that was beside the physical pain of, of, of crucifixion. Because men have bore, bore that since Christ time and time and time again. One of the biggest burdens that was upon Christ pre-crucifixion was the fact that there would be this separation for the first time ever. And that's why he cried out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Um, so this morning, in, in doing this study, there are, there's one thing that really jumped out to me and one thing I really want to focus on this morning, Okay. Um, and I just think it's really, really important. And it's a huge question for Christians and uh, the way we live life and the way we deal with, with problems in life. And a lot of us don't understand it while, while when bad times come and hard times come upon us. But hopefully the book of Job this morning will be able to shed some light on the situation. You know, I love the book of Psalms. It's probably one of my favorite books in the Bible. Just because of the fact that Psalms shows such the character and nature of God, of who God is, and how God deals and relates to man. And David David said it beautifully in most of the Psalms, just the, the character and the nature of God. You know, and there's just so many different topics of, of conversation that we can look to in the book of Psalms. But um, Psalms is really great. You just basically have to go through it and read it and just meditate on the character and the nature of God. Um, Lamentations. I don't know if it's a good book. <laughs> it's a hard book, you know? And uh, obviously, dealing with Jeremiah's issues of the day that he was going through, I mean, God was about to bring judgment upon Jerusalem and, and the kingdom of Judah. And it was hard times, very, very hard times. And we see that being poured through in the book of Lamentations as well, too. Um, but today, what I really want to focus on is the book of Job. And I want to kind of dig a little bit deeper into it. And so we can maybe see... Some of the issues that, that arise out of it, not only in Job's life and God's dealing with Job, but also in the life of the Christian. Okay, you see, in my opinion, the Book of Job, above all else, is an instruction manual on how we deal with suffering. Um, it gives many, many insights into the way that God deals with His people and how the people deal back with God in the heart of suffering. Okay, now. A couple of quick facts about the book of Job. The authorship of Job is not really known. We don't know who wrote Job. The date of Job is really hard to predict. I've heard many different speculations about the time frame. But a few things from the book of Job that we can look to is the fact that there was no Levitical um, institutions in Job. So this is most likely means that Job is pre-law. It's it's pre-Egypt. It's pre-time whenever the the Jews went into... um, into the desert and receive the law. It's, it's, it's pre this time and most likely from the language used in Job as well too. It's probably a very early setting. The fact that Job's wealth 
is counted in flocks and herds, brings us back to the time of the patriarchs, maybe a little bit earlier. And the fact that in the end of the book of Job, it says that he was 140 years old. We know that not much past the time of Abraham did people live to this age. So we can see that Job was probably living just before the time of the patriarchs came. And this was the time of Job. Um, we see that Job sacrifices for his own family. So therefore, there was no there was no priesthood that he would take the sacrifices to. He was his own priest of his house and he would sacrifice for the, for the family in this way. Um, so these things kind of lend to us about the time frame that we can speculate at best when Job actually occurred in history. OK, let us start off this study. In the first chapter of Job, and we're going to read chapter, um, chapter 1, verses 1 through 5. <coughs> hey, I'm sorry, you're going to have to bear with me this morning until I'm trying to get over a little cold here, okay? So, here we go. There was a man in the, in the land of Uz, whose name was Job. And that man was blameless and upright, one who feared God and shunned evil. Remember whenever we talked about Noah? And Noah being perfect in his ways and how he was blameless in his ways before God. Um, it says the same thing about Job right here. But keep in mind, this does not talk about perfection. No man, no man is perfect. All men have sinned before God. What this refers to with Job is he was a man of upright standing. He dealt with integrity and honesty in all of his, de- all of his dealings. So he goes on from here. He says, uh, and he had seven sons and three daughters who were born to him. And his possessions were 7,000 sheep, 3,000 camel, 500 yoke of oxen, 500 female donkeys, and a very large household, so that this man was the greatest of all the peoples of the east. Uh, Let's go down to verse 5. So it was when the days of the feasting had run their course that Job would sin and sanctify them. And he would rise early in the mornings and offer burnt offerings according to the number of them all, speaking of his children. For Job said... It may be that my sons have sinned and cursed God in their heart. Thus Job did regularly. Job was from the land of Uz. He was blameless. He was upright. He was a man of honesty and a man of integrity. He feared God and shunned evil. I just want to kind of go over this right here because it says that he feared the Lord. Because he feared the Lord, he shunned evil or put evil away from himself. Now, this fear that the Bible always talks about, and, you know, I just feel like every time I talk about the fear of the Lord, I have to kind of go over it again just a little bit. It doesn't mean, oh, I'm scared of God. I'm fearful of the Lord. It means to have a deep respect for God. And because Job Job feared the Lord, he had this deep respect for God. It caused him to turn away from sin, to, to avoid evil and to shun evil and to pursue righteousness. See, he did what was right, and he turned away from what was wrong. Solomon tells us this in the book of Proverbs, that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. So to have a a fervent respect, a deep respect before God is the beginning of wisdom. So from this we can see that Job was a wise man as well too. Because he feared or respected God, he shunned evil. He turned away from what was wrong. I believe personally that because Job lived a life, a blameless life, a life of honesty and integrity, dealing with men righteously, and that the fear of the Lord produced a, a, a righteous character in Job, he turned away from doing wrong, that God blessed Job abundantly. 
with cattle, with family, with sheep, with camel. I mean, this, this was the means of wealth in Job's day, okay? The Lord brought blessing upon Job's life because he feared the Lord. He also sacrificed on behalf of his children. Just in case his children might have sinned or done something wrong before God, he said, I'm, I'm going to cover their, their life with a blood offering, a blood sacrifice. We already see this, this co- concept in this early day of Job of the life of the innocent being given for the life of the unrighteous or the life of the guilty. You know, the innocent for the guilty, just as we see, we see in Christ on the cross. This was, this was a, a concept known back in this day very, very early. All right. In all of this thing, all of these things, we see in Job a tremendous respect for God in all of his dealings and all of his family that covered it. Now, something interesting happens in this part right here, okay? And this is chapter 1, and we're going to read verses uh, 6 through 12. <coughs> now, there was a day when the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord. I want to stop right here and just make a comment, okay? It says the sons of God came and presented themselves before the Lord. This was the same um, verbiage used describing in the days of Noah, right before Noah. It says when the sons of God saw the daughters of men and saw that they were beautiful and basically came in and had sex with them and produced a, a hybrid, angelic human hybrid, okay? This is the same verbiage right here. So it's talking about the angelic host of heaven, the angelic beings, in this, in this verse right here. When the sons of God came and presented themselves before the Lord, and Satan also came along with them. And the Lord said to Satan, From where do you come? So Satan answered the Lord and said, From going to and fro on the earth and walking back and forth on it. Then the Lord said to Satan, Have you considered my servant, my servant Job? For there is none like him on the earth, a blameless and upright man, one who fears God and one who shuns evil. I just want to stop right here and make a point. Satan did not bring up Job before God. Okay? This wasn't Satan coming up to God and saying, hey, this dude Job, let, let, me, let me add him. Let me have Job. I want a piece of him. Okay? I mean, he's upright. He's blameless. No. God is the one who, who tempts Satan and says, look at my servant Job. There's none like him on the earth. Basically setting up this whole process that Job's about to experience. God's the one who initiates the contact here. This is very important for us to, to, to remember here. God's the one who does it. And then verses 9 through 12, I'm going to just kind of paraphrase here. Satan says to God, does he serve you for nothing? Do you not have a hedge of protection on Job? Have you not blessed his life abundantly with all the good things of life? He said, take that away and let's see what happens to Job. Let's see what Job does. This is important, okay? Because without God removing the hedge of protection over Job's life and allowing Satan to come in and start this process, it'll never, never happen. This is going to be important for us to remember. God's the one who removed the hedge of protection. Satan could have not done anything save God taking his hand away, okay? From this point on in Job's life, we see he begins to lose everything. He loses his herds. He loses his, his kids, he loses his servants, he loses his livelihood. Everything in Job's life begins to go, go south. Now, in all of these things, the Bible makes it clear, Job did not sin, and Job did not blame God for anything that was happening. Uh, we see this in, in one chapter 1, verses 20 through 22. Let's take a look at it. Uh, starting off in chapter 1, verses 20, then Job... 
arose. He tore his robe and shaved his head, and he fell to the ground and worshipped. In adversity, when Job had everything taken away from him, he didn't shake his fist at God and raise his hand and say, God, you're unjust. You're wrong for this. I have no sin in my life. I've been upright and blameless all my days before you. He says he fell down and he worshipped before God. And this is what he says. Such words of inspiration and such an example for the rest of us to follow. Naked I came from my mother's womb, and naked shall I return there. The Lord gave, and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. And all this Job did not sin, nor charge God with wrong. After this, Satan goes back before God. He says, that's fine. Yeah, Job, Job didn't sin against you, okay? But take his health away. If you touch a man's health, then he, should, he will surely curse you before your face. So once again, God had to remove his hand of protection off of Job's life for the enemy to come in. Okay, this is once again. Think about this. This is going to be very important in a, in a, in a couple of pages down here when we're discussing it. So disease overtakes Job's body. He lost everything. He lost his herds. He lost his family. He lost his business. He lost his livelihood. Now he loses his health above everything else. And we see in chapter 2, verses 9, Then Job's wife said to him, Do you still hold fast to your integrity? Curse God and die. But I love this, what Job says to her. He says, You speak as one of the foolish women speak. Shall we indeed accept good from God? And shall we not accept adversity? In all this, Job did not sin with his lips. In the first chapter of Job alone, we see a potentially life-changing principle that if something that we embrace and we hold dear to our hearts can literally change our lives, okay? There are times, and this is not what I'm speaking to in the context of this whole message we're about to lay out before us, okay? There are times in life whenever we do wrong. We sin, we do evil, we do wrong to other people, you know, um, and then the negative consequences of our actions come against us. And oftentimes people are, oh, well, why did God do this? Well, you know what? God didn't do it. You did it. You made your bed, and now you're going to have to lay in it. For instance, uh, this is the first thing that comes to mind. Somebody smokes a pack of cigarettes for 40 years of their life. Then at the end of their life, get lung cancer. Well, you know what? God didn't give you lung cancer. You did it to yourself. By your own actions, you cause the consequences to come back upon yourself, okay? This is not the context in which we're speaking, because we see in Job's life right here that Job was innocent. He was doing the things that the Lord had called him to do, and this is the context in which I want want us to look at it, okay? I want to make a, a point here, though. Job was not sinless, nor are we. We still have sin daily in our life. Whether you want to measure it large or big, whatever, we have things in our life that are sin. However, Job was upright. He was honest. He was a man of integrity. He was one who feared God and shunned evil. Okay? We're not perfect. But that does not mean we're out there wronging people or doing things to cause harm or doing things to bring negative consequences in our life. We're on the same page here right now? Okay. This is a principle that we need to grasp. If we're doing the things that we know we need to do before God and serving him to the best of our ability, whatever happens in life, whatever happens in life, in the life of the believer, whether it's good or bad, triumph or tragedy, it ultimately comes from the hand of God. Once again, I want to make it clear. I'm not talking about 
doing evil and reaping negative consequences, okay? I'm talking about living your life as an upright, moral person of integrity and honesty, and bad things come up upon your life, okay? This is nothing that's self-inflicted here. While God did not strike Job, we see that. God did not strike Job himself. He allowed Satan to. He, he removed the hedge of protection that he had put up upon Job's life and allowed the enemy to come in. You see, bad things can only, and I want to stress this, bad things can only happen to the believer if God allows it. If he allows it, then it is his will. Good things can come upon the life of the believer by the hand of God. If he bestows it, it is his will. If we walk righteously before God, we can expect blessings. This is to be expected. However, if we walk righteously before God and evil comes our way, we can rest assured, rest assured that God has allowed it. You see, there, there's nothing that happens in life outside of the will of God. There's nothing that takes God by surprise whenever, whenever hard time and hardship comes our way that God says, oops, you know, that one just slipped by. No, God is a sovereign God. He's omnipotent. He's omnipresent. He's everywhere, and he knows it. So if any adversity comes upon the life of the believer, it is only because God has allowed it, and therefore it's God's will. You know, we don't necessarily understand it, just as Job didn't understand it here. And we don't need to, okay? As we'll see, whenever, God, whenever Job starts to question God, God comes back with a rebuttal against Job, and then it's pretty fierce. And hopefully we can get, that, get to there this morning. But I just want to drill this point home, and I just want to make it abundant and get it from our heads to our hearts, that whatever happens to, in life, whether good or bad, is the will of God. It happens because God either allowed it to happen or made it happen. See, this brings, for me personally, this brings great peace into my life. No matter what happens to me, whether it be blessing or cursing, good or bad, God has let it happen. This leave, leaves room for very, very little fear in the life of the believer. For who has resisted God's will, whether it's good or bad? See, God gives and he takes away. He gives good and he allows adversity. At the end of the day, nothing, absolutely nothing happens to me apart from God's will. And I want to say that again. Absolutely nothing happens to me or you as a believer and a child of God apart from the will of God. Let this, let this bring peace to your life. That even in the dark and, and trying and trials of life, these times, that is God's will. I mean, who are we uh, to shake our fist in God and say, God, why would you let me experience this? I mean, we know from, we know from Scripture and we know from the Bible that the very character and nature of God is good. So why not just submit to him in times of, of hardship into the hand of a loving creator and one who cares for us and one who wants to see good happen in, in our lives? You see, when God allows adversity, it is not for our destruction, opposed to what the enemy would bring upon our life. The enemy would come in and bring adversity and trial and pain to see our destruction, to see, to see us shrivel up and wither away. However, when God would allow adversity to come into our life, it is not for our destruction. It's to bring something forward in our life. We all rest in God's hands. Nothing, and I'm banging this drum, but I'm banging it again. 
nothing, absolutely nothing happens without him directly doing it or him allowing it in the life of his children. Whether good or evil, God allows it. Okay? This is the point that I want to make to y'all this morning. And it's the big point. And I think, for me, it's one of the biggest points out of the book of Job is that whether good or evil, we can submit to God because we know he is in control. Nothing gets by him at all. So from here, in, in this part of the story, Job accepts his lot, and then three friends come to comfort Job, okay? Over the next 34 chapters in the book of Job, we see this discourse going back and forth between Job and his friends. Beginning in chapter 3, Job laments his lot in life. And rightfully so, everything was taken from Job. He lost everything. His family, his farm, his business, his health. He mourns and curses the day of his birth and his conception. He yearns for time to be reversed before he was conceived. He wishes he died at birth. And since neither befell him, he wishes to die right here, right now. He's like, God, just take, take my life. It's not worth living. Just let me die here now. And at this point, the argument begins between Job and his friends to prove to Job why he is wrong. Why he is wrong and he has sinned before God. You see, later in the book, if we get there, we'll, we will see the folly of their arguments. Because God says, you have, you have not spoken truly to my servant Job. So in all their arguments... Um, they were only half-truths. And they were, they were half-truths. So some of them was true, but they were only half the, the whole truth. I, want, I just want to go through a summarized version, okay, of what they spoke to Job. They all asserted that God is just in meeting out rewards and punishments according to a person's good or bad deeds. All, all of his three friends asserted this. Eliphaz, the first one, suggested that Job's impatience resulted from a loss of perspective. Then he offers the orthodox assessment of the situation. He says, God causes no one to suffer innocently, but repays humans according to their deeds or their misdeeds. Chapter 4, verses 7 through 11. Humans are never perfect, and therefore must endure some suffering as a result of their sin. Chapter 4, verses 12 through 21. And suffering must be seen as God's mean of shaping and teaching the human soul. Chapter 5, verses 17, 17 through 27. This is Eliphaz's summary of his argument against Job. Bildad, the second, the second friend of Job, agrees that God punishes the wicked, asserting that God cuts off the wicked altogether. Chapter 8, verses 4. Job lives, Bildad says, therefore Job's sin must only be a light sin. It must not be no egregious sin that he committed before God because he's still alive. This is the argument that Bildad makes. Zophar, who's his third friend, asserts that while people cannot know all that they have done to merit punishment, God knows. And Job deserves his suffering, according, according to Zophar. And he said that just because he doesn't know what, what he's done, speaking of Job, he says God knows. You see, in all of these 34 chapters, and that was a very, very brief summary, okay, in more than 10 speeches of his own, Job holds scorn for all of these positions. He doesn't accept uh, not a single one of these positions of his friends. He rejects them all. And not only that, but through the discourse of his friends, he begins to wonder, and he becomes increasingly convinced that God owes him an explanation. See, this is where Job starts to get on a little bit on thin ice, okay? Because, yeah, he's suffering, 
He's accepted it. But after discussing with his friends, he's like, God, you know, why? Why am I suffering, am I suffering so much? And it seems like a rational enough you know, uh, thought or question. But he begins to question God. And he, he believes that God owes him an explanation. He asserts that his, he is innocent of wrongdoing that merits all this suffering. He boldly asserts his innocence and calls God to account. Turn with me, if you will, Job 31, verses 35. He finally, in this chapter right here, issues a summon to God. Whoa, Job. <laughs> You're braver than me, bud. I mean, I know life's rough and, and, and rougher than any of us in here can imagine. But whenever you're going to summon God and call an account to God, you better be careful what you ask for. Job 31, 35 through 37. Oh, that I had one to hear me. Here is my mark. Oh, that the Almighty would answer me. And the prosecutor had written a book. Surely I would carry it on my shoulder and bind it on me like a crown. I would declare to him, being God, the number of my steps, like a prince, I would approach him. You see, he says, lay upon me my accusations. Bind it, I'd bind it, I'd carry it on my shoulder, I'd bind it on my head like a crown, a crown, the accusations that are against me. And not only that, but he says, I will declare to God my innocence. I will declare to God the number of my steps. And not only that, but I would walk into his presence like a prince. Because Joe said, I'm innocent, therefore, I'm going to walk before God boldly and, and declare to him my innocence and tell him why I'm, I'm so innocent before him. And God says, really? Is that what you're going to do, Job? And I wanna, just want to hit some highlights because within four chapters, I'm sorry, seven chapters, and in in starting chapter 38, I just want to hit some highlights God calls out to Job out of the whirlwind. And, and I'm, I'm going to skip around here a little bit, but I just want to hit some of the highlights of what God says to Job. Then the Lord answered Job and said, Out of the whirlwind, who is this who darkens counsel by words without knowledge? Now prepare yourself like a man. I will question you, and you shall answer me. Where were you when I laid the foundations of the earth? Tell me if you have understanding. Who determines this measurements? Surely you know. This was, this was some of a, somewhat of a backhanded comment towards Job from God. Surely you know. You're so wise and, and you know everything, obviously, because you dare to question the God of all creation. Surely you know these things. Or who sh- Verse 8, or who shuts in the sea with doors? And when it burst forth and issued from the womb, when I made the clouds its garment and the thick darkness its swallowing band, when I fixed my limit for it and set bars and doors, when I said... This far you may come, but no further. And here you proud waves must stop. Have you commanded the morning since, you, since the days began? And caused the dawn to know its place? Verse 19. Where is the way of, of dwelling of light? And darkness, where is its place? That you may take to it its territory. And that you may know the paths of its home. Do you know it because you were born then? Or because the number of your days is great? Turn over to verse 31. Can you bind the cluster of Pleiades or loosen the belt of Orion? Can you bring out the Maseroth in its season? Or can you guide the great bear with its cubs? Do you know the, know the ordinances of the heavens? Can you set their dominion over the earth? This is speaking of the constellations. 
And God's question in Job, he says, Job, you're innocent, but you're going to come before me and proclaim your innocence and want to know from me why you suffer? First answer me these things. Where were you when all this stuff happened? Where were you whenever I did all these things? In each case, Job had no answer. You see, God replied to Job with a list of questions regarding Job's place in creation and managing it and making sense of it. After four, four chapters of this, of God questioning Job, Job finally answers God. And this is found in verse 42, verses 1 through 6. And this is what Job tells the Lord. I know that you can do everything, that no purpose of yours can be withheld from you. You asked, who is this one who hides counsel without knowledge? Therefore I have uttered what I did not understand, things too wonderful for me, which I did not know. Listen, please, and let me speak. You said I have a question for you, and you shall answer me. And at the end, this is how Job answers the Lord. He says, I have heard of you by hearing of the ear. But now my eyes see you. Therefore I abhor myself and repent in dust and ashes. Whenever you saw the majesty of God and the one who holds the universe in his hands and the creator of all things, Job says, who am I that I would even have dared question you? For I've only heard of you by ear before, but now I've seen you. And he, he, he hated his attitude. He hated his response to God, and he aborted himself, the Bible says, and he repented from it. Job repented, and God accepted. You see, friends, this is the point. The Bible goes on to say that God was not happy with Job's friends. If they would sacrifice it and bring it to Job and have Job pray for them, that he would forgive them, and he did. And not only that, but God restored everything that Job had lost. Everything that the enemy had taken from Job... And I say the enemy taken, but only remember, because God allowed him. God removed his hand of protection from Job and allowed the enemy to come in. God restored it all. Not only did he restore what he had, but he doubled everything that Job had. They said that Job lived the second half of his life full, full uh, living. and had more than he ever had before. You see, God is God. We are not. The Bible makes it clear that his thoughts are so much higher than our thoughts and his ways are so much higher than our ways that we cannot even begin to contemplate or even begin to understand the ways of God. He is God, the creator of all. He will do as he pleases in all of his creation and he owes, this is important, he owes not me, not you, not any of us, any explanation for why he does anything at all. He is God and he can do it simply because he wants to. Now, this may come as a surprise to some of us, but do we know that God can't do everything? Really? God, are you really there saying that God cannot do everything? That's what I'm saying. God cannot do everything. You know, God can't lie. God can't steal. God can't murder in the sense of cold-blooded murder, taking somebody out. God cannot do anything that is contrary to his nature, his person, or his character. He's bound by his nature. He's bound by his person. He, he, he can't, God cannot do everything and anything. That's a false question whenever good people ask that. Can God do everything? No, God can't. So therefore, he's bound by his person. We know that he is good. We know that God is good. And he desires to bring the goodness to his children and his people. But in, in, in this being said, 
God does not owe us an explanation for anything that he does, for he is God. We are his children. We are in his hands. We know that whether good or bad comes to us in our life, all that comes to us is from God, whether it be good or bad. Let us take comfort and peace in this fact that God is in control. Let it bring freedom from stress and strife and worrying about all the negative things that could possibly happen in your life. And worried about well, what's going to happen if I do this, or what's going to happen if I do that, or what happens if I die tomorrow in a in a in a bad car wreck. You know what I say? If I'm pulling out of this church after church, and I get in a wreck and I die, you know what I firmly believe in my heart from the book of Job? It's only because God allowed it. And if God allows it, who am I to protest? It's God's will. He knows best. He's the Creator of all. And with every other aspect of life that we can see negativity coming our way, God allows it. Let this bring peace. Let this bring comfort that we are in the hands of a loving and a good God. And even when he allows bad things to come, he is still good. And he still knows the best for our lives. If we suffer, let us submit. Remember, Christ suffered. And it was the will of God for Jesus Christ to go all the way to the, to the torment of the cross. And it was the will of God. And he submitted to him. Just as we should. Just as we should submit to God. In the good when it's easy, and the bad when it's difficult. Take comfort that in feasting or famine, in sunshine or rain, or pleasure and pain, God is in control. Amen? Amen. Father, we just come before you, Lord. And you're a big God. You're huge. Matter of fact, you're so big, Lord God, that you spoke the very worlds into existence, oh God. You hold the universe in your hands, O oh Lord. And therefore, we know, Lord God, that you hold our life in your hands. And we know, Father, that anything that comes to us, whether it's good or bad, comes from you. So, Father, let us submit our lives and our hearts to you, O oh God. And let it bring comfort and peace to us that you control our lives, Father God. You speak good things to us, Lord God, and you give us good things. And when adversity comes our way, it's only because you allow it, O oh God. Let us submit ourselves to you, Father God, and let this bring peace to our lives, O God, as we serve and we follow after you. In Jesus' name, amen and amen. Amen. Everybody say amen.